we're now today on the Church of Philadelphia, which is the sixth one in the list. It's got multiple name tags that have been attached to it. One of them is the Church of the Great Missionary Movement, and this chart is identifying that time period as roughly 1648 to 1900. 1648 to 1900. We know that in the early 1600s, the pilgrims came to America to flee religious persecution. First, they went to Holland, and that uh, was much better for them than what they were enduring in England, but they ultimately decided to sail to the New World, the New Continent, and establish a nation under godly biblical values, principles, morals, etc. The pilgrims were Puritans, as you know. And so it was during this time period, the mid-1600s, the Moravians and other groups that were very evangelical, desiring to spread the light of the gospel all over the world. So we're looking at Philadelphia. It's also been identified as the faithful church. And, of course, the word Philadelphia means brotherly love. So the church of brotherly love. And the true church will be a church that is characterized by love one for another, agape love. So the faithful church, the church of brotherly love, the missionary church, we're just going to look at two verses today, Revelation 3, 7, and 8. So I'm going to read that now if you'd like to follow along with me. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true. He who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. So as I've already stated, this church represents the missionary church of the last days, from about 1648 to 1900. And the reason the cutoff point is 1900 is because over the last 100 years plus... 120 years, uh, we have seen a decline. Other than the Jesus movement of the late 60s and into the 70s, we've seen a tremendous decline in church attendance. We've seen a tremendous decline in those who adhere to all the cardinal beliefs of the Bible, the doctrines of the Bible, the gospel. And we've seen a decline in the number of missionaries being dispatched around the world. So with the exception of occasional missionary ventures, the churches of the Middle Ages, prior to this missionary era, they didn't do very much at all to spread the gospel during the Middle Ages. They spent more time fighting religious wars and playing politics with the civil rulers. As I mentioned several times over the past few weeks, every type of church represented here in Revelation 2 and 3, I believe, is still in existence today. But the only two that are having an impact are the suffering or persecuted church, like Smyrna, because anytime people suffer for Christ or martyred for Christ, even though it's difficult, it's painful, it's not desirable, it does have a dynamic and powerful impact on the people who see what true believers are willing to endure for the cause of Christ. Many people have been born again. Many people have been saved simply by observing believers enduring persecution. 
So the Smyrna church, the persecuted church, which is still alive and well uh, all over the world, particularly in places like China, North Korea, and even in Russia, although Russia has opened up some, it opened up quite a bit for a while and then started to clamp down again on various evangelical groups coming into the country. But the persecuted church, the suffering church, and then the serving, here's another title for Philadelphia, the serving church, the missionary church, the church of brotherly love. These are the two out of the seven who have had the most enduring and ongoing impact in our world. We know that all around the world persecuted Christians are thriving in their faith and those churches that are serving God and His church by faithfully proclaiming the Word of God both at home and abroad, whether they be large or small, are truly the light of the world and the salt of the earth. So I would say as we get into this first two verses here, 7 and 8, Philadelphia is the church that every God-fearing, Bible-believing, born-again, spirit-filled pastor and Christian should want to identify with. This is the church that I hope we are, that we strive to be. Let's pray. Father God, we lift up this time in your word. We ask you to bless our study. Thank you that you're the good shepherd and you're faithful to feed your sheep. Lord, we ask you to just help us to ingest, digest, process the information that we have before us today. May it have an impact on our lives, the way we think, the way we live. Bless this study now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write. And so, as we've identified the geographical location of these various churches, Philadelphia was located about 28 to 38 miles southeast of Sardis. So, if you're looking at that Turkish map, it would be to the southeast of Sardis. And it was actually named for the king of Pergamum, a guy by the name of Attalus. Philadelphus. He's the one who had it built. Philadelphus, you may notice, is similar to the Greek word Philadelphia, meaning brotherly love. And it occurs seven times in the Bible, this word Philadelphus. Romans 12.10, 1 Thessalonians 4.9, Hebrews 13.1, 1 Peter 1.22, 2 Peter 1.7, twice, and Revelation 3.7 here. Now, Philadelphia was a less significant city than the others that Jesus addresses, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, but it was part of an area known for its agricultural products, and it was famous for its vineyards and hot springs. The chief deity was Dionysus, the god of wine, and so it kind of sounds like a real party town, doesn't it? Vineyards, wine, hot springs, and sometimes the city was called Little Athens because of the prevalence of idols and paganistic gods within the city. So the fact that this church flourished as it did is, is an, as a major testimony to the dynamic quality of the Christian faith they possessed. Philadelphia was plagued by earthquakes which destroyed the city several times, most recently A.D. 37, but there is still a strong Christian presence. Keep in mind, Turkey is predominantly Islamic today. But there's still a strong Christian presence in this city of Philadelphia today. So he says, these things, says he who is holy. Of course, this is Jesus. And if you, may, you may have noticed that in each of the messages to the seven churches, the Lord reveals uh, some different aspect of his divine nature. 
In Revelation 2.1, it was him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, that would be those churches, and walks among the seven golden lampstands, rather those would be the churches, the light, shining the light of the gospel. Him who is the first and the last, this is Revelation 2.8, who died and came to life again. Revelation 2.12, him who has the sharp double-edged sword, his word, the same word with which he created all things. When God spoke all things into existence, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were all there. John 1.1 says nothing was created without him. And when he comes back in Revelation 19, he will slay the armies of the earth with the sword that comes out of his mouth. Fourthly, Revelation 2.18, the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Can't wait to see him. It's going to be awesome and amazing. Okay, Revelation 3.1, him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Revelation 3.7, these things says he who is holy, he who is true. So here in Revelation 3.7, the emphasis is on his holiness and his truthfulness. Luke one thirty five, and the angel answered and said to her, Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the highest will overshadow you, therefore also that holy one who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Can you imagine Mary, about 14 years old? This angel tells her, you're going to be pregnant, even though you're not married, you've never been with a man. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. And your baby is that Holy One who is to be born, who will be called the Son of God. Can you even imagine? Luke 4.34, let us alone, these demons say to Jesus, What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are. Even the demons know. We know who you are, the Holy One of God. How sad is it we live in a world where so many people refuse to acknowledge Jesus as the Holy One of God, and yet the demons acknowledge it, and they tremble with fear. He who is true. So there's the Holy One. Now, he who is true. Jesus doesn't just speak the truth. He is the truth. John 14, 6. I quote it all the time. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He doesn't say, I will show you the way, does he? Follow me and I'll show you the way. I'm one of the ascended masters. I'm the latest and greatest guru to come on the scene. No, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He who is true. And then Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? God is 100% reliable and truthful. Jesus, who is God, he who is true. So that's the one speaking to the church of Philadelphia. The Holy One, He who is holy, He who is true. Being in holy and true, Jesus is worthy to judge the spiritual condition of the church at Philadelphia. But it's, it's good news. There is no rebuke for this church. Remember all the churches have had a commendation and then a rebuke? He who has the key of David. This is a quote from Isaiah 22:22. Uh, the key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. That's a messianic prophecy. 
The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder, the Messiah, so he shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut and no one shall open. And so this key of David is a symbol of authority. This speaks of Christ's royal claim as the ruler of this universe. And then Luke 132 and 33, he will be great, he will be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob temporarily, forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. We know that ultimately all of the kingdoms of the earth do and will come to an end. Right now we're fighting, and I think it's right that we should fight to preserve this nation that God established in these last days to be a light to the rest of the world. But someday this will also come to an end. But Christ's kingdom will be forever. There is no end. So, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Christ is the one who opens doors of opportunity, whether it be for ministry, which of course is his highest priority, and even vocationally if we're seeking God's guidance and direction for our lives, and he opens the door for some type of a vocational job opportunity, that can be a place of ministry as well, can it not? Should be, really. But he's also the one who closes doors. Many view this as a reference to the open doors of evangelism and missions in the last days. We've talked about Russia, China. There have been various people down through the decades and that have smuggled Bibles into communist countries, into China, into the former uh, Soviet Union, the Iron Curtain. Early in my uh, walk with God, I read a book, uh, God's Smuggler by Brother Andrew. How many of you have ever read that? Very inspiring book about Brother Andrew and his Bible smuggling into the uh, Eastern European nations that were under communist rule. And again, so we did see that reopening in certain parts of the world that had been closed. And of course, Jesus is also the one who closes the doors. And so there will come a time when those doors will all be closed as we move into that tribulation period, which we will be observing from the upper deck. But it's important to remember, Jesus is the one who opens and no one shuts. So if we know that God has a plan for each one of us, a purpose for our lives. And so if we're making our best effort to seek his guidance and direction, we can trust that he will open the appropriate doors. No one can stop you. If you keep your eyes on Jesus and you're following his game plan. But also, if he closes the door, sometimes, unfortunately, if we're honest, we try to knock down a door that he's closed. Never a good idea. Never works out well. Better to trust in him, keep our eyes on him, look for the open doors. That happened to Paul. He was headed in a certain direction and the Lord closed the door and he had that vision of the man from Macedonia. Come over here. We need your help. We need your help. And God redirected Paul and he will do that. He will redirect us as long as we're open 
to his guidance. Matthew 7, 21. Jesus also has absolute authority, by the way. When we talk about open and closed doors, he has absolute authority to admit or reject anyone from entering his kingdom. There are a lot of people who think they'll be able to stand before God and make their case on why they deserve to be let in. But it's only by putting your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, confessing your sins, acknowledging that his sacrifice on the cross paid the price for your sins that will gain you admittance into his eternal kingdom. Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. We don't earn our way. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying that if you're a true believer, the evidence will be that you obey God. You walk in obedience. Not perfectly, because we're all imperfect. We do stumble. We do make mistakes. We do still sin, unfortunately. But as I've said so many times, there's a difference between the difficult walk that we all face where we're doing our best to follow God, to obey God, but then we sometimes we fall short. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But it's all about lifestyle. Is our lifestyle one of, you know, no matter how many times we blow it, no matter how many times we stumble and fall, that we're quick to repent, to ask for God's forgiveness, to confess our sin, and seek His refreshing and His renewal. Just like the Israelites had to receive the manna from heaven daily, right? They tried to store it up, and it got maggot infested. We need to seek God daily for His strength, for His guidance, for the infilling of His Holy Spirit. Because we are weak. We are imperfect. But there's a difference between someone who is a believer in name only. They identify as a Christian, but the lifestyle doesn't line up. It's a conscious choice and decision we make each day. Are we going to follow God or follow our own fleshly desires? So not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now, we start into the section on commendations. So he identifies himself here, and then he immediately moves into the commendations section for the church of Philadelphia. The Lord has a whole list of commendations for this church. I know your works. Jesus sees here a church that is fruitful. Ephesians 2.10 For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we are expected as believers to bring forth fruit. God created us in Christ Jesus for good works. We are his workmanship, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And that's what Jesus sees here with the church of Philadelphia. I know your works. They're good. Evidence of a true believing faith true saving faith. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. So because of their brotherly love, that agape love that permeated and penetrated their congregation, their good works, their keeping of his word, upholding his name, he has opened a door to the world which no one can shut. 
and they're privileged to be partakers of God's great end times harvest of souls. So that's the contemporary application here. If we want to be a part of that, again, God is still saving people today. You've heard me say that I don't believe we're going to see a big worldwide revival. I see, I told the folks up in Omaha last week, week and a half ago, that I do see a revival within the church of true believers being awakened, being renewed. But at the same time, the Bible speaks of a great falling away. But if we want to be a part of bringing in, the Bible does say, Paul said that uh, he talks about until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That's when God would begin to restore Israel. We've already seen that happening with more and more Jewish people coming to Christ, the nation of Israel being reborn. And we're very close to what the Bible refers to as the time of the Gentiles coming to an end when that last person, only God knows who that would be, comes to Christ. If we want to be a part of that harvest, then we need to be a church of brotherly love, where agape love. I was wonderful to hear that our sister uh, Giovanna share how she felt so well received and loved on when she came in this morning. That's a great testimony for our church. Praise God. But that is the key ingredient, the key element. Remember the uh, dispute between Mary and Martha, and Martha was upset because Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, just receiving ministry from Jesus while Martha was running around trying to prepare a meal for everyone. And she kind of got a little nasty with Jesus. Lord, why don't you tell her to get up and help me? No, not going to do it. She's chosen the better part. Because before we enter into these good works, we need to be sitting at the feet of Jesus, receiving from him so that we can bring forth that fruit of the Spirit, agape love, so that whatever we do, it's empowered by God's love. It's not a work of the flesh. And that's the kind of church Philadelphia was, empowered by the love of God. So I know your works. I've set before you an open door that no one can shut. Thirdly, you have a little strength, dunamon. In the Greek, it's the Greek word from which we get our English word dynamite. Remember that guy, dynamite. So it, you have a little dynamite, you have a little power. And so I think a lot of us probably are frustrated at times because when we study the New Testament, it just doesn't seem like the church today is as powerful as that first century church. But we still see that those like the Philadelphia church are making a difference in the world. As long as there's the slightest sign of life or enthusiasm for the things of God, he will use us for his glory. You have, now, some believe that what, what he says here, you have a little strength or a little power. It's not referencing their lack of spiritual power, but to the fact that they were small in numbers and therefore small in terms of resources. So a church... It may not be large or, or strong in that sense, but they can have the faith and love to go through the doors of service that Christ has opened up with his key, the key of David. So it's a powerful message. Remember Gideon's army? I mean, they were minute compared to the forces they were up against, like 160,000 of the enemy, the Assyrians, versus uh, 300 in Gideon's army. And yet who prevailed? 
Gideon's army, God's army. So you have a little strength. You're not a massive church there in this very carnal city of Philadelphia, the city whose chief god is Dionysus, the wine god. People going to the hot springs and taking their flasks of wine with them and so forth. But they were having a powerful impact because they were a serving church, a loving church, a missionary church. And then the fourth thing he says is you have kept, boy, this is so important, you have kept my word. So the church at Philadelphia was the one which was true to the word of God. True to the word of God. And that was a distinctive feature. And again, so if we want to be like this church, which I said earlier, we should all desire to be like this church of Philadelphia, then we need to keep the word of God as we have been faithful to do these many years. J. Vernon McGee said, This church in Philadelphia has been labeled many things. Some have called it the missionary church. Some have called it the serving church. Some have called it a live church versus the dead church we previously studied. You have a reputation that you are alive, but you are dead. Sardis. J. Vernon says, All of these are accurate. He says, I personally like to call it the revived church or the Bible-believing church. It is, says J. Vernon McGee, the Bible church. I would love to be identified by that, wouldn't you? Calvary Chapel East, the Bible church. The loving church, certainly, church of brotherly love, but the Bible church, where we still honor and uplift the word of God and we don't water it down we don't change it we don't leave parts out now the fifth thing the last one for this morning have not denied and have not denied my name and we've talked about this recently I'm pretty sure that many will acknowledge God in a general non-offensive generic way because let's be honest that word God our God is Jehovah right Yahweh, the great I am. But just saying the word God has different meanings for different people. And there are many different gods out there with a little g. But the name of Jesus, when that name is used, we talked about this, I think, even last week. People are polarized. Sides are taken. People who, like, Police chaplains, military chaplains, people in different areas of the public arena are often chided or rebuked for using the name of Jesus, ending a prayer in Jesus' name. And I suppose there would be some people who would take the approach, well, you know, we don't want to turn people off. So we'll just kind of hold off on talking about Jesus and we'll just talk about God, right? The only problem is, as we looked at last week, that Jesus' name is the only one given under heaven by which man must be saved, Acts 4.12. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So what happens if we leave out the name of Jesus? We really don't have anything to give people, do we? 
Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, Mashiach, the Messiah. That's Christ is the English transliteration of the Greek word Christos, which is the Greek version of Mashiach, Messiah, the anointed one. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of the Messiah, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek. So this final commendation that Jesus has for Philadelphia is they have not denied the name of Jesus. Another interesting point as we get ready to close for this morning, we'll look next week at the special promises that Jesus has for those who are part of the church of Philadelphia. So hopefully we too are a part of that church and these promises apply to us as well. But from what we know, this church lasted longer than any other of the seven churches mentioned here. This is very interesting. Until the 13th century, it had a continuous existence. Oftentimes we see within various denominational groups, churches, movements, uh, within a couple of generations, they're dying out. And that's why God has to raise up new groups, different groups, because after a while, a second, third generation, it begins to become stale, watered down, apathetic. This church lasted until the 13th century. It was destroyed by the Seljuk Turks when they came in and brutally murdered all the believers who were left in this church. It was also a missionary church. The fact that Christianity penetrated into India from Turkey all the way over to India as early as it did was because this church had sent out missionaries to India. So again, one of the model churches of these seven churches in Asia Minor, this church does still exist on the earth today. My hope, my prayer is that we are a part of this group, the Church of Philadelphia. Let's stand. Father God, we thank you for this wonderful church, tremendous role model for us. A church that Jesus has no rebuke for. That's pretty amazing. Characterized by their agape love, their brotherly love, their desire to share the gospel, to spread the gospel, to send out missionaries. Commended, Lord, for their good works. Not because their good works would save them, but because their good works were the evidence that they were truly saved, that they were bearing good fruit for the kingdom of God. Father, what an amazing history for this church that lasted literally for centuries there in Philadelphia. Father, we want to be like that church. We want to be a church that is characterized by brotherly love, the love of the brethren, agape love, and also known as a church that is a Bible church, a church that keeps your word. Lord, may we always keep your word. May we never... Ignore it, second-guess it, water it down, bypass it, alter it. Help us to stay true to your word from cover to cover, Father. Your word is truth. Lord, you even said that you've honored your word above your own name. How incredible that is, Lord. So we know that you place the highest of values on your word that you've given us, that you've handed down to us through the centuries. You've preserved it. Many have tried to destroy it, to get rid of it. 
but you have not allowed it and you will not allow it and we're told that your word endures forever and it will be written on the tablets of our hearts in eternity. Lord, we won't even have to have a Bible to, to open up and read anymore because your word will be imprinted upon our hearts and minds. What an incredible thing we have to look forward to there. So Lord, as we close, we just pray that you would help us to daily pursue this goal of being like those believers in Philadelphia. Lord, the model church, really. And Lord, one that is greatly needed in these last days, as we will see in a couple weeks, that final church, the church of Laodicea, the lukewarm church, which is already here, alive and well, so to speak, on planet Earth. Lord, the only remedy, the only antidote for Laodicea is Philadelphia. So we ask that you would help us to pursue that by your grace and your mercy and the power of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, as we take time now, we want to pray for those who need prayer this morning. So I'm just going to ask anyone if you need prayer for yourself or someone else, raise your hand. A lot of people. And there's nothing wrong with that. Praise God. I see all your hands. We're going to pray for you here. But you know what? God said you have not because you ask not. Ask, seek, and knock. He loves to give good gifts to his children. And so we should never be embarrassed or ashamed to admit that we need or want prayer. So Father, I lift up each one of these folks to you now. God, you know each heart. You know what's going on in each life. You know whether this prayer is for them personally or for someone near and dear to them. Or it could even be someone they don't even know that well but that you've put upon their hearts this morning. Father, we lift up each unspoken request here. These are silent requests. The people have raised their hands asking you for wisdom, guidance, direction, encouragement, strength, provision, health. Lord, I just pray that you'd pour out your healing oil upon our church. We have a number of people who are needing physical healing, Father. Nick Miera, Lord Andres Herrera, Liz Pete. Pat, sir. Joey Correa. Lord, and on and on it goes. Kay Johnson. Reiner. Lord, these folks need your healing touch. Lord, we thank you for doctors. We thank you for medicine. We thank you for surgeries and all the modern, amazing technology that we have. But only you can absolutely heal and heal absolutely. Lord, you're the healer of our bodies. You are the great physician. And we ask that you'd pour out your healing oil upon the people of our church, Lord, and anyone connected to us. Greg Beckwar. Lord, we remember these folks daily in our prayers, as we should. And Lord, we pray that you would glorify yourself in our physical bodies, Lord, that you would heal us and it would bring glory and honor to you. And Lord, whatever else is going on today in the lives of the folks here that have raised their hands, it might be concern over the salvation of a, a friend, a loved one, a relative. We do pray that you would give them the gift of faith and the gift of repentance, that they might be born again by the Spirit of God, and receive Christ as Lord and Savior. For protection, Lord, some are, are worried, fearful, anxious about this virus. We ask that you would comfort and strengthen those who are struggling 
with anxiety, with fear, with doubt. Comfort them, strengthen them, encourage them, and we pray for your hand of protection on everyone in this church and everyone connected to us. Father God, we thank you that when we come to you in Jesus' name, you promise to hear those prayers and to answer them. So we lift all this up to you now. Pray for safe travel as we go home this morning or out to lunch or wherever we go. And we do pray, God, that you would do an amazing work in our state and in our nation, that there would be a return to you, to your word, that we would turn away from death and turn to life. And please now receive our final offering of worship in Jesus' name. Amen.